Hello, and welcome to a special episode of First Fuel. On Tuesday this week, the Energy Efficiency Council launched the third edition of our annual Energy Briefing for Australian Business, Navigating a Dynamic Energy Landscape. To celebrate, I hosted a panel featuring senior leaders from ANZ, Blue Scope Steel, Line and the Grattan Institute, who all gave me their two cents on how Australian businesses are approaching energy and carbon issues in the midst of COVID-19. It was a great chat, which I hope you enjoy. And if you're interested in taking a look at our latest briefing for business, check out energybriefing.org.au. So a little bit of background. When we launched the first annual edition of this briefing in 2018, it was in response to the events of 2017 when we saw massive price spikes in the unit cost of both electricity and gas. That was an extraordinary year in energy, which generated a huge amount of public concern and political debate. It also left many businesses that were coming off contracts and dealing with those price rises scrambling to get across what was going on and how they could secure their energy position. This whole project was conceived at that time. It arose from the real there was no obvious place for businesses to go for straightforward, independent, intelligible information that they could use to orient themselves in this transformed landscape. Sure, there were thousands of breathless news articles at one end of the spectrum and 100-page technical reports from bodies like AMO at the other, but not much in between. So the briefing we launched in 2018, updated in 2019, and are updating again today is designed to fill that gap, to give business leaders the background they need on what is going on in our energy system but more importantly, what they can do about it. Now, the energy landscape being faced by Australian businesses in 2020 is being shaped by two massive and interacting forces. On the one hand, the impact of COVID-19 on global oil and gas markets has driven down the cost of gas and electricity, which has given business a temporary reprieve. But the underlying fundamentals in both gas and electricity markets means we probably won't sustain prices at these levels as the economy recovers. On the other hand, climate and emissions have shot up the agenda for business in a way that was just not apparent when we were putting the briefing together a couple of years ago, driven by global momentum and the devastating bushfires that started the year here in Australia. In particular, the avalanche of net zero commitments from business has been striking, but as we all grapple with global recession, we're hearing that there is a lot of caution around making the capital investments needed to support better energy and carbon management. So we have a lot to unpick today. The good news is we have an absolutely outstanding panel with us that bring a range of expertise across business, energy markets, finance and carbon. And we've got a good amount of time. So after we hear from each of our panellists, we'll get into an extended discussion during which we'll have the opportunity to answer a few of your questions. So let's get into it. And I'll start by introducing all of our panellists before posing a question to our first panellist, who is Tony Wood, whose storied career includes stints with Origin Energy, the Clinton Foundation and the Ghana Review. But for the last nine years, he has been Energy Program Director at the Grattan Institute and is, of course, one of Australia's leading energy commentators. Bridget Carter, Manager of Energy Sourcing and Utilisation at Bluescope Steel. She manages the team responsible for procuring Bluescope's Australian energy needs, overseeing contracts worth in excess of $170 million per annum across more than 50 operational sites. Justin Merrill is Group Environment Director at Line, one of Australia's largest brewers. He's responsible for setting Line's environment strategy that focuses on carbon, sustainable packaging and water stewardship. 
and Christina Tonkin, Managing Director of Corporate Finance for Institutional Banking at ANZ. Corporate finance includes ANZ's sustainable finance area and houses ANZ's relationship banking activities across resources, energy and infrastructure. So, Tony, if I can start with you, it is impossible to kick off a conversation like this without tackling the impact of the pandemic on energy markets head on. We know the economic shock associated with the pandemic has contributed to declines in in gas and electricity prices, as I said, but most commentators are pointing to the fundamentals in both those markets to argue that these lows are unlikely to be maintained as the economy recovers. Do you agree with that? And if so, what are the underlying drivers that are pushing us in that direction? I do think that the, the theme of these events navigating through this sector is becoming an increasingly challenging one. I um, wonder whether it's ever going to get easier. But, of course, what it does is throws up both opportunities and challenges, and, of course, at the core of that is managing risk. Um, so I think unpicking what's going on um, now and what's sort of, the, sort of the key factors that are going to drive what happens next uh, is definitely worthwhile. If you ask me in five years' time what happened in 2020, well, I'll tell you. Um, if you ask me now what is going to happen, it's, that's where the interesting discussion takes place. So I think what's interesting about this uh, recession, this, you know, beyond all the incredibly painful impact it's had on lives across the country and across the world, is that there's so much differential activity going on that it, um, depending on where you are in the supply chain, depending upon what industry you're in, um, the impacts vary dramatically. So, for example, you mentioned the impact on oil and gas. Well, even if you look at the problems that Australia's um, refineries are having, um, a lot of it isn't just total reduction in demand. It's actually very, very differential changes in levels of demand for diesel, for aviation fuel and for petrol. And that just reflects, when you think about it, the obvious activity in the electricity side. Um, overall, electricity consumption in Australia has hardly shifted. Um, which is an unusual situation globally, um, but it certainly moved. So people are now, as I'm sure the majority of people on this call this morning are, are consuming electricity at home rather than consuming electricity at work. And that has an impact on them and it has an impact on the businesses. Um, so as, as you implied, look, I think what's happened initially and what we're seeing play out now is that we have seen significant falls in the wholesale price of gas and electricity. Depending on where you sit in the supply chain, depending on what your relationship is with your supplier, your retailer, if you deal with a retailer, then you may not yet have seen the full impact of those reductions in wholesale prices. And if what I'm about to say turns out to be more or less true, then you may never see them um, because things might start moving the other direction. Of course, all this is related to the nature of the contracts that people have with their, their suppliers and their customers. If they're long-term contracts, then you're obviously managing one level of risk. If you're short-term contracts, it's a different sort of risk. But right now, the dynamic is quite interesting uh, in the sense that there's a lot of movement going on. The underlying cost of gas has been pretty well affected by what you said, although I think the um, in the, in the fundamentals of gas, it is very unlikely that we are going to see a return to um, the prices of gas that we saw 10, 15, 20 years ago in the last uh, 30 or 40, 50 years. And the reason for that is basically the physical situation of gas supply. It's, as far as I can see, not possible to see how you can deliver gas to the east coast of Australia at those sorts of prices virtually ever again. Now, that doesn't mean that spot cargoes, individual cargoes of um, LNG uh, won't be priced very competitively indeed. And right now, that's certainly happening. And some of that is going to flow back to the domestic Australian gas market. And so it is going to move around quite a bit. Um, 
And anybody who's in a position to take advantage of that can do quite well. But of course, you know, any business who can suddenly take an entire shipload of LNG um, probably is on top of the business anyway. The reductions in electricity prices are a little more complex. Um, wholesale prices of electricity after a very volatile period and very high prices are back where they were in 2015. Mostly that's caused by lower uh, fuel input costs, coal and gas, uh, a lower cost now than they were in 2015-16. Secondly, we've seen um, significant volumes of more renewable energy coming into the system. Uh, we've seen the closure of a couple of coal-fired power stations, and demand is not growing in, in broadly across the across the market. And so that's meant that um, electricity wholesale prices are quite low, and some of that has started to flow through to consumers, but not very much yet. Certainly at the domestic level, and again for commercial customers, it depends upon uh, where you sit. The reason we would suggest that, again, electricity prices are probably not going to move much lower, or they could, you could see a lot of volatility, is that the underlying costs are more or less um, are now pretty close to um, the long-run marginal cost of the technologies. And as that, as that moves forward, two things are going to happen, I think. One is we are going to begin to see, both at the wholesale level and at the retail level, the impact of balancing uh, the move towards solar and wind. Now, if we'd replaced all of our coal-fired power stations with nuclear or hydrogen generators, then um, we wouldn't have the same physical challenges we have as we replace uh, centralised coal and gas with wind and solar. But that's the, that's not the reality. We do we are doing what we're doing, and um, whilst wind and solar are the cheapest per megawatt hour, we don't yet really have a grasp of what those costs are going to be. But I'd say most likely the, the prices of electricity they won't move back up where they were couple of years ago, um, but I suspect they won't be returning. Um, they'll probably be moving up somewhat. So I think that that's going to be uh, a big issue. And so what that means is for the buyers of energy, I think buyer be informed is the right answer because you will get, if you're in a business and you are, you'll get opportunities to sign up for a purchase agreement with renewable energy, it will look very attractive for that proportion of your, uh, your consumption that comes from that source. But it might also mean that your business is now taking on some more risk and risks that historically were simply absorbed by your retailer. There's a deal associated with how much risk you're prepared to take. The important issue here is that we don't, what we don't want to see is consumers, either businesses or households, who end up effectively ending up with risk they didn't know they were taking. And so I think it's very important that when deals get put in front of you that look too good to be true, um, test to find out if they are too good to be true. Um, because it, all it means is with good information, there will be opportunities. And for the smart businesses who are across their energy supply, there will be big, big opportunities. And I think the last point I'd say on this question, Luke, is that something we don't talk about a lot is reliability. Now, if you're a big aluminium refinery um, or smelter, you are seriously understanding what reliability means. And if you're a, you know, a hospital, you might have a generator in the basement, for example, right? But for most of us, we've never thought about this much. We've had a, one level of reliability for everybody. What we know is that not everybody values reliability the same way. It depends upon individual circumstances. We are moving to a world in which the opportunity and the challenge of dealing with different levels of reliability becomes real. The opportunity for consumers, particularly business consumers, to participate in the market, get a better price deal, but they may be trading off some level of reliability. That may be a big opportunity. It may result in significant cost savings. But if you do that without understanding 
the consequences there you could get caught. So all I'm saying is that there are significant opportunities here which where price and reliability are related and there's an enormous, uh, I think, uh, potential for those businesses who really are prepared to put in the effort and understand how that trade-off applies because they may find they can save a lot of money. Well, let's uh, go to one of the businesses that have been leading in this space for a while. Bridget, when I take a look at Bluescope's approach to energy and carbon, um, it's really impressive, both in terms of the ambition, but also the breadth of activities you guys engage in. You're an early adopter of energy efficiency, uh, renewable energy power purchase agreements and demand response. You're also an active participant in the recently launched Australian Industry Energy Transition Initiative, which is developing pathways towards NITS zero emission supply chains. So what have been the key drivers for this really proactive engagement on energy and climate strategy from Bluescope? Um, from our perspective, I suppose everybody knows, you know, there's been a lot of upheaval in the energy markets mm. over the last decade or so, and really that has had a marked impact on cost um, for all businesses, including Bluescope, and really brought that energy policy and, and market reform to the forefront as an issue for us. Um, there's also, you know, that undeniable and justifiable global focus in shifting to a low emissions future as well for the economy. So, you know, Bluescope's always had a strong history of constructive engagement on energy policy and reform and partnering with, you know, organisations to sort of work on energy and operational efficiency and, you know, research emerging technologies and also, you know, more recently, as you've mentioned, with the, the industry energy transition, um, developing low emissions pathways for industry. But when we sort of look at how we're going to engage on those topics, really how and why is fundamentally driven by the purpose of the business. Um, it may sound corny, <laughs> but that's at a high level. That's what drives us. You know, we exist as a business to create, inspire, smart solutions in steel to strengthen our communities for the future. And that really says it all. Um, and how we do this is by making steel products um, cost effectively, really, um, and as cost effectively as possible. And we do it with respect and care for our communities that we operate in. So we really need to be, as a business, sustainable in every sense of the word to be able to live up to this purpose and then provide ongoing shareholder value as well. Um, so what's important to us is affordable, reliable and sustainable energy. And, you know, this is not only important to our business now, but we think this is also a key enabler of the transformation of industry to a low emissions future. So when we seek to engage, we do this, we do it with this in mind and uh, we look for opportunities to reduce costs um, by looking at how we contract for energy and interact with the market. We continue to have, you know, a company focus on energy efficiency and productivity um, and also support, you know, emissions reduction initiatives where we can commercially um, and engage with policymakers as well. Um, and market bodies on key market reforms and policy development. Really, that's, that sort of sets out <laughs> the fundamentals of how and, you know, the drivers of how we engage with those 
different topics. So, so given the, the breadth of uh, activity you undertake in this, this broad area of energy strategy and management, there's obviously a bunch of different things you could be doing and a bunch of different things you could be addressing in particular orders over time. How do you sort of um, rank and, and stack those different potential investments? How do you prioritise across um, what, what is a, a very large business? Yeah, so I suppose it still sort of comes back to that looking for opportunities for the things that that um, treat the trilemma. Mm. <laughs> um, so that trilemma really rings very true for us. Affordable, reliable, sustainable supply is what we're looking for. So, you know, while the energy market is in a transition and this can present a lot of uncertainty. Um, as Tony said, and we are firm believers, that it also presents opportunities for businesses um, to engage with those markets. And so, you know, you may have businesses that are with different levels of sophistication um, and different risk profiles, but if they are able to actually find the time to engage with um, the market and understand exactly what their drivers are, um, then I think they'll be able to find opportunities for their business. Um, with respect to how we then look at sort of energy efficiency and productivity um, projects and how we rank them, it is um, clearly embedded within our normal business processes. Um, so we have business improvement processes um, that we run all of our improvement projects to. Um, and so we use that framework and mechanism to also drive our energy and emissions reduction projects. Um, and then on top of that, uh, we have, you know, further strengthening of that resolve by having internal business targets um, as Energy and manage, any energy management and emissions also go sort of hand in hand. Um, we have our overarching commitment to the 12% reduction in emissions intensity at our steelmaking facilities as well by 2030 that really sort of drives our commitment and, and the way that we understand and prioritise our projects. All right. Well, thank you, Bridget. I'll, I'll go to Justin now, who's our, our other business perspective on, on the panel today. Um, Justin, like Bluescope Line, has been engaged in this topic for some years now. And when we spoke on the phone last week, you made the point to me that you really come at the energy conversation through the lens of carbon emissions rather than the other way around. Indeed, earlier this year, I understand Line announced it was Australia's first large-scale carbon neutral brewer, which is quite an achievement. Congratulations. Uh, can you tell us a bit about the journey that Line's leadership team went on as you developed and implemented the strategy that got you to carbon neutral? Uh, the journey. The journey started in January last year um, when our supply chain director came up to me and said, what would carbon neutral look like for, for Lion? <laughs> Which if you're a sustainability um, practitioner, you, you kind of leap onto those types of queries um, because it gives you a bit of a sign that that's something that they're, they're considering as a leadership team. So I think my first um, initial reaction was one of excitement and then followed by something um, closer to caution. But I, I guess the way that I scoped the opportunity um, was just looking at all the, the benefits that going carbon neutral would bring to the broader business. So understood that it would ultimately be a cost um, because carbon neutral means carbon offsets for some 
portion of your emissions. Um, so I knew ultimately there'd likely be a cost up. So I needed to prepare the defences for those types of um, conversations. And I did that by looking at the the benefits that it would bring. And, and I think the main um, benefit that I focused on was sustainability leadership. So I was basically saying to the leadership team, look, if you really have the appetite to push line into a sustainability leadership position, then this is a really good step to take. Um, the other qualities of going carbon neutral were around what it would do for staff engagement um, and what it would do for the brands in terms of what opportunities would it offer marketing um, to put the brands and their sustainability credentials out there in the marketplace, appreciating that the, the generations coming through now are going to be a lot more conscious about um, carbon and, and climate change and, and what it means to their, their way of living. Um, the other dimension was one around supply chain collaboration. So I, I guess to give everyone on the call a bit of perspective, our scope three emissions in line are approximately four to five times bigger than our scope one and two combined. So that's where the bulk of our emissions sit in that scope three uh, footprint. So just by looking at those numbers, you know that a carbon neutral product portfolio um, is going to be a very expensive exercise um, in terms of offset costs. So again, we saw organisation certification as, as a stepping stone into those types of products. Um, and by having a carbon neutral organisation, it really gave you a licence to go to into the boardrooms of our big suppliers and say, look, we're doing our bit. How can you work with us to focus on your emissions and ultimately make the journey to um, carbon neutral products a lot easier? So in other words, get the suppliers um, to do a bit of the heavy lifting around the carbon abatement. And also, I guess, looking at what the offset projects were and, and what sort of co-benefits they could deliver to the group. And the thing that really excited me about Lyme when I joined about two and a half years ago, um, and I'd come from Qantas and I was, and I'd obviously worked with their Future Planet program, which is offsetting jet fuel emissions, you know, 30,000 feet in the air. But with Lyme, our, our dependency on agriculture, um, I guess, is, is intrinsic to the, the products that we produce. So having that connection to the agriculture sector and looking at potential offset projects in that area to build climate resilience in the agriculture sector was, was I guess, really um, uh, really exciting to be able to stare at that and go, gee, I wonder, I wonder if we could really close the loop on carbon in brewing by looking at investment in carbon offset projects within that agriculture sector and, and soil carbon and those types of projects. So, and the, and the final thing, Luke, is that um, I guess when I looked at Lyons' history uh, with regard to energy efficiency, it was, it was quite strong. And you, you actually hear from um, Warren Proctor later on today. He's, he's one of our humble engineers that's done a fantastic job of pulling together the energy, energy management system, um, you know, across the network. Um, we had the on-site solar that we were installing on the Forex Brewery up in, in Brisbane. We had two large biogas plants, one in Tuis and one at Forex. And we were just at that stage looking at a renewable electricity um, power purchase agreement in New South Wales. So if you looked at everything that we'd done, we really thought that we're in a legitimate position now to actually look at carbon neutral because we've got you know, a good track record on energy efficiency and biogas and renewable electricity, both on site and, and large scale. So I think that for me was the clincher 
and and basically going into that final session with a leadership team and saying, you know what, you've, you've earned the right mm. to go carbon neutral because you've ticked all the other boxes. Mm. So don't feel exposed. Don't feel you're taking a risk. Just see it as the next natural step for a company that's already got, you know, a lot of runs on the board with respect to other carbon abatement opportunities. And I suppose, Justin, also a leadership team that has, has been on a journey by, you know, getting their heads around and leveraging those opportunities over a, over a reasonable period of time. And so um, it sounds like, given that the, that was a question that was posed to you around carbon neutrality, that the, there's a level of sort of sophistication within the leadership team around around these topics um, a level of understanding um, and that's that's uh, that's the benefit of a, of a journey that, that they've been on over over years not months right yeah that's right I mean again if you think about energy efficiency and on-site solar PPAs biogas um, I mean that that's to me was a signal that they've you know committed to these um, projects in the past and therefore carbon neutral actually felt within reach and it just had to be framed in that way, uh, I guess, to convince them that it, it was the obvious um, next step for a more aggressive position on climate change. And it was also legitimate. So the message was that you, you don't go down the road and buy the cheapest offsets you can and, and tick the box. You, you actually have an opportunity to pick projects which are consistent with your, your environmental vision um, and, and really target those projects and the co-benefits that it can bring to the, the community and, and ideally the, the agriculture sector as some of these um, offset methodologies in, in agriculture develop and mature. I mean, and, and soil carbon, it's a great concept and everyone gets it in terms of, you know, pest resilience and drought tolerance and those types of um, opportunities. But it, it's quite a soil carbon is still quite a challenging area to be able to measure and, and execute. But again, it's, it's something we can look forward to in future phases of the carbon neutral commitment. So, Justin, for businesses that are, that are listening in that are perhaps earlier in their journey, would it be your guidance that um, you, you start with some of those opportunities sort of that you can get your arms around on your own site uh, around, you know, energy efficiency, energy management, um, on-site renewables and the like, and, and, and then start look at um, offsets for anything you can't deal with yourself? Yes, yeah, absolutely, particularly if you've got quite a large, um, you know, emissions profile. And, and as I said, it, it gives – and we have, a, we have a hierarchy – and at the top of that hierarchy is energy efficiency. So that still remains our number one priority. Mm. And then we go down to on-site solar and PPAs, biogas optimization, and those sort of things. And at the bottom, we have what we call our safety net, which is the carbon offsets. Mm. And that's, despite going carbon neutral, that, that hierarchy still remains true. And the focus is still on cost. So we know that you know energy efficiency can um, provide us returns. The interesting thing with the carbon with going carbon neutral and actually investing, you know, heavily into carbon offsets, it, it sets an internal carbon price for you. And it was it was remarkable how quickly the procurement guys got onto it. And, you know, these business cases started coming through and, you know, there's an extra price in there, there's an extra, you know, saving um, as a consequence of not having to buy offsets if this project were implemented. So it was, um, I mean, that's that's their game. That's what procurement people do. But it was, it was really good to see how quickly they'd picked up that concept. So, um, 
but yeah, you're right. You you focus on those things, and and one that saves money, and two, it gives you legitimacy when you do um, eventually go carbon neutral. If that's the if that's the journey you're on. All right. Well, uh, Christina, I might go to you. It is uh, has been an incredible year. Of course, we kicked off with devastating bushfires, and it was certainly my sense that consumer investor and supply chain sentiment around climate issues was shifting incredibly rapidly and and businesses were responding. Um, But since then, we've been plunged into a a global pandemic and an associated recession, which means the landscape has fundamentally shifted over the last six months or so. Uh, You're talking to businesses all the time as they grapple with the downturn. Do you expect momentum on energy and carbon investments and issues to slow uh, remain steady or uh, pick up pace? I mean, in a nutshell, absolutely pick up pace. Mm. Uh, you know, I was thinking this morning, and thank you very much for the invite to speak today, um, what word best describes 2020? Um, certainly unprecedented, um, but I also think, like, incredibly complicated. Um, and I think, you know, the um, 2020 and COVID-19 is touching all communities across the globe at every different level, uh, from individuals through small business to larger corporations. I think when uh, an ANZ um, operates in about 33 markets uh, and therefore we have a customer base that does span across the globe, I think when the impact of COVID really started to largely accelerate and be felt more widespread probably in, you know, March or so this year, it did mean that for a lot of companies, time stopped there for a moment. I think, you know, companies were very focused on their employees and transitioning, uh, you know, their employees to be able to work safely and effectively from home where they could do that. Uh, So, You probably at the beginning of this saw, um, you know, the finance directors of companies focus on the here and now and the immediacy of accessing liquidity and what was COVID going to mean for various covenant packages and things that they had in their loan facilities or their debt facilities. Subsequently to that, we've actually seen, you know, the pace of interest in sustainability increase. Uh, You know, I would say across our corporate financing activities, which covers everything from sort of project finance through to M&A takeover, as well as sustainable finance, our sustainable finance team is probably the busiest it's been Mm. in terms of speaking with customers at really every level of the economy and right across from investor customers to our corporate customers about what is happening in that space and what are the options open for them for different types of fundraising. Uh, So we're expecting that to continue and to accelerate as we move forward. And uh, Christina, as a bank, what what, what do you see your role as in um, this transformation that we're seeing play out across the economy. I remember you saying to me some years ago that, in a sense, as a as a big bank, um, your your loan book sort of reflects the shape of the Australian economy. Yeah. And obviously, we're contemplating um, when it comes to carbon and emissions, sort of a, a pretty significant transformation uh, across uh, the coming years. Um, what is a ANZ's role? I think if you 
you sort of step back in time, ANZ indeed with a lot of other banks have been involved in financing greenfield projects in the renewable space for many, many years. Um, I would say that sort of shift, certainly from an ANZ perspective, to looking at it as more of a sort of end-to-end um, corporate kind of basis, how did you mainstream the thinking around sustainability? That probably happened back in about um, 2012 when we established our sustainable finance sort of central team within ANZ. Uh, You know, obviously there's a number of different pillars to that. It's ANZ actually as a a company itself and as a a property owner and looking at our own efficiency footprint, whether that's energy efficiency or um, water utilisation or waste management, it's right across the board. And of course, um, you know, out of our group corporate centre have been looking at the energy efficiency of the buildings that we own and also the buildings that, uh, you know, we rent and lease and how do you improve that going forward. I'd also say that, you know, it's the establishment of sort of effective targets um, that sort of corral activity around that. So back in about 2015, when ANZ did its first green bond, which was a a 600 million issue, uh, really off the the back of a lot of greenfield projects in the uh, renewable space and indeed probably energy efficient buildings, that's when we established a a target of, of 10 billion uh, by 2020, uh, where it's uh, ANZ's results next week, so you can see how we've gone to get that. Um, about this time last year, we came up with a revised target, which is 50 billion by 2025. <laughs> so setting of targets, I think there's nothing like the setting of a target to kind of focus the mind. I think development of, of product and um as I said, you know, the, the financing of individual projects has been quite well established over a long period of time. But I think for, you know, the banking sector in Australia and indeed in Asia Pacific, taking what was largely happening out of the European markets around the development of green bonds, green loans, sustainability-linked loans, sustainability-linked bonds, and looking at how that could be effectively adapted for the customer set in Australia and indeed Asia has been, you know, quite pivotal. And as you would well know, Luke, you know, I think the finance sector along with insurers and the regulators are are currently engaged um, in what is called ASFI, the Australian Sustainable Finance Initiative, which is looking at how we can deploy more capital into the sustainable finance um, activities. I think lastly, uh, but very critically, and I think this is comes to energy efficiency is, you know, we have a big customer base from personal customers all the way from large businesses to small businesses. So, effective education of our own relationship managers in terms of what is happening in energy efficiency, I think is particularly important. And indeed, we've partnered with um, the Energy Efficiency Council to educate our bankers. But also, I think it is connecting our customers um, to 
all our other customers because we have a lot of customers and you can see from Bridget and Justin how widespread and how deep the thinking is in particular companies. So connecting that kind of information into smaller businesses in the supply chain I think is incredibly powerful. And at their heart, you know, banks are intermediaries, so bringing that education piece together and development of product hand in hand, I think is quite powerful as we continue on the journey. That's a fantastic point. And um, I suppose that that idea, Christina, and the the role that you and other banks are playing in terms of bringing together some, it's, an, it's a wonky word, but commu- almost communities of practice so that we can disseminate the, sure. the insights that are, that are being generated in one business and in, into, into other businesses, particularly where there are leaders. There are, there are larger organisations that are thinking deeply of around these issues but there are lessons which are which are transferable right Um, because there's there's a a transition that's underway it's happening incredibly rapidly we don't have time for everybody to work it out by themselves Um, it's it's really about supporting supporting particularly particular industries as they uh, as they navigate this journey I think every part of the economy and every part of the sector from investors to insurers to banks to corporates, you know, need, it needs to be a whole of economy approach in order to transition effectively in a, in a meaningful fashion. First Fuel is brought to you by the Energy Efficiency Council, a not-for-profit membership association for businesses, universities, governments and NGOs. The Council's mission is to unlock the potential of energy efficiency to deliver healthy, comfortable buildings, productive, competitive businesses and an affordable, reliable and sustainable energy system for Australia. To find out how your organisation can get involved, visit eec.org.au forward slash membership. All right. Well, uh, Justin, um, one for you for in, at least in the first instance. Um, there's a bit of interest in the in the questions around uh, the it, the internal carbon price that you referred to earlier, and the question is around how um, that experience um, with an internal carbon price support other businesses with reducing their carbon footprints and and their energy energy bills. I suppose you've you've got a a very uh, substantive internal carbon price because it's offsets. But um, is there is there merit in, in 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 businesses that are sort of more at the start of this journey thinking about the role of an internal carbon price in, in thinking through some of these issues? Yeah, I mean you're you're right. Our, ours is a real price because mm. we can calculate it um, very accurately from what we emit and what we pay for offsets. Um, so that's in that sense, it's a, a particular type of internal carbon price. I think. To, to answer that question, that you've got to understand what's your motivation for setting that internal carbon price. Um, is it because you want to set aside a portion of budget to spend on carbon abatement projects? Is it because you want to set a price that's reflective of what a carbon price should be in the market to get to a 1.5 degree um, global warming scenario? Is it an internal carbon price to show to your in- investors that you're taking climate change uh, responsibly? So, you, you know, there's, a, there's a, a lot of dimensions that you need to think about in setting an internal carbon price or a shadow price for carbon. But I think it, it comes back to, you know, what is your motivation? What do you want to achieve from from going through that process? 
Um, and that's a, a conversation that we're, we're starting to have with our parent, Kieran, in, in Japan because they're keen on setting a price, but they, I, I guess I'm querying them what, 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 what's the motivation, what, what's the objective of setting a price and how do you, how do you expect it or anticipate that it's going to translate into, into action? Christina, the, the federal government recently released its 2020 budget. I think it's, you know, for the most part, been relatively well received, particularly from the business community. Um, and at its heart was, was this $5 billion instant expensing provision to encourage businesses to invest in new assets. And it sort of uh, didn't, didn't escape our attention that this provision could potentially be used to upgrade equipment and cut energy costs and, and carbon mm. and get a productivity boost along the way. Uh, what's your read on the likelihood businesses are going to be looking at that, that, that sort of instant expensing provision through that lens and, 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 and leveraging it to drive those sorts of investments? Yeah, I would definitely say that, you know, all companies will be looking at, you know, any kind of incentives and targets that are driving, you know, better efficiency um, and, you know, reducing the cost overall and encouraging, you know, that journey. I mean, you know, certainly as a, a sort of bank, you know, we have um, a lot of relationship managers that are out actively managing, you know, our customer relationships. And I would say, you know, initially, you know, a lot of the discussion around, uh, you know, net zero emissions was, you know, somewhat restricted to certain companies, certain sectors. But as time's got on, that's become more broad stream and more mainstream. So there'd be very few companies that we bank today that don't have articulated strategies about how to respond to the challenges around carbon and how they can drive efficiency in their end-to-end operations. And so as a financier, you know, we're looking to try and work with those customers um, and link them together with, you know, better product in that space to, to continue that journey along. And, you know, as I said in the opening comments, I just think you're going to see that accelerate. So whether that's initiatives at a federal level or at a local level. I think all of these initiatives are um, warmly welcomed. Anyone else want to chip in on those instant expensing provisions? That's Tony. What is becoming clear, regardless of where a company sets its internal carbon price, what it means is that um, people are now making decisions in which they're no longer assuming there's going to be no carbon price. There's a, you can argue about what level of carbon price and how quickly it's going to go to what level and so forth. What that means is that Investments that assume um, ongoing uh, that don't are not consistent with mm. the move towards net zero in the time frame we're talking about are the decisions you don't make. Now that doesn't mean you don't make investment decisions, but you may because of the uncertainty around the speed of that transition, you might make them more cautiously. Um, but I think that the combination of that thinking then says, well, if I'm looking at this investment write-off thing. I don't go and invest in something I, w- I wouldn't otherwise invest in. I may think about the timing quite differently. And so I'll give you an example that might be, well, if I understand that if I'm a, if I'm a moderately gas-intensive manufacturer, so I'm using gas for heating. I'm not, I'm not, not talking about huge, get really seriously gas-intensive manufacturers or those who use gas for the feedstock for whom the change is difficult. But it might be that I'm in a business where I could actually move towards electricity, but I've got to change my boilers, hmm. for example. At some point, I'm going to have to do that. Maybe 
I think about when's the best time to do that. Um, and maybe this is the sort of thing I should take advantage of um, because I know that in the long term I'm going to have to move in that direction anyway. So I think what we are beginning to see is some, clar- some clarity, not mm-hmm. much, from governments that is encouraging people towards low emissions investment. Um, now, the government itself, of course, keeps talking about investing in gas infrastructure, which would not be consistent with bringing down emissions in the long term. But, of course, gas remains a very problematic issue because right now the forecasts are that within a couple of years, Victoria's going to start running out of gas. So, I mean, you know, that, how, they, how we balance that is going to be important. But for investment decisions, I think companies who are looking ahead might very well say, well, look, um, now's the time to make some of these investments. Well, particularly, you're right, for manufacturers that are in those niches, like if, you, if you've got low-temperature heat processes that are amenable to transition from, from gas boilers to electric heat pumps, you know, that is something that is, is feasible and plausible now. And as you say, it's a, it's a really good point. Um, if you're thinking, oh, well, I'm going to need to do that in the next five years, taking advantage of these instant expensing provisions and doing them in the next two um, and getting that extra, that, that extra benefit from um, from the the tax system that just exists just for the next little while, um, it might, might be pretty compelling if you've if you've got the capital available to do it. I have a, a question around leadership engagement, which um, I, is is kind of been posed to the to the group, um, but particularly to, to to Justin, Bridget, and, and Christina as energy users, and it's really about how do we engage with senior leadership. I'm a, I'm imagining our questioner is um, is uh, uh, got some fantastic business cases um, that sitting sitting on their desk, but um, he's having trouble kind of getting the attention of their executives, and and the question is really around what. What is the what are the best arguments? What is the best framing for implementing smart energy management in your own operations that, that really hits the mark with the leadership team? Justin, we haven't heard from you for a few minutes. Do you wanna do you wanna have a crack at that? Yeah, I guess as a, a sustainability practitioner you you try multiple ways to get your your business case through and if one doesn't work you try the next one and, and, and around you go. So you'll have a pitch that you'll need to develop for the finance director, you'll have a pitch that you'll need to develop for the marketing director, you might have a pitch you need to develop for treasury. So I think it's being able to dress that business case up to your audience um, is going to give you the best chance of success. So, and and ha- again, having a look at um, all the dimensions to to undertaking that business case, it might, it might be weighted toward a financial return, it might be an opportunity to look for government funding. I know ARENA um, a very supportive of, of Lion. Um, Sustainability Advantage in New South Wales have been very supportive of, of Lion. And part of the reason why they're so active in our space is because of that carbon neutral commitment, that net zero commitment. So this is the place you can get to where you, you get into this um, cycle of positive reinforcement where you, you make a commitment as an organisation and all of a sudden that pricks the interests of the relevant government funding um, bodies and, and then you're starting having to have those conversations. So, um, and, you know, ARENA is, is, is very active and are looking for, for projects to um, support. So look at a government funding um, opportunity as well, looking, again, what it can do to your staff engagement, looking at potentially what it can do with your brands if, if that's the business that you're in. Is there a role for your suppliers to play? Is, is there a collaboration opportunity? So, I mean, to, to sort of dig into that policy um, space, I mean, 
we're not holding our breath waiting for federal um, policy in this area. I mean, we see the future at this point in time as as collaboration, as partnerships with our suppliers. We know that that's what's going to move the dial in the absence of any clear direction from the, the federal government. So that's why we will sit down and have a conversation with Visi. Um, you know, we'll sit down and have a conversation with BevChain, our logistics provider, and, and what can they contribute to a business case? So, um, you know, for the person who asked that uh, question, step back, have a look at all the different dimensions, have a look at, you know, where you might get the attention from the various um, people within your leadership team, and then just keep keep pushing, keep pushing. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the, the only thing I'd add to, to that great answer, Justin, is, um, you know, different businesses have different strategic priorities. You know, we happen to be talking to a, a couple of businesses today that have, have a laser-like focus on, on on carbon for a whole range of different reasons, um, as well as obviously managing costs. But um, for some businesses, that might not be where they're starting. It, might, it may be actually the cost imperative. Um, well, they may see carbon as, you know, something which is, uh, is you know, a, a risk more in the medium term but if they can get the extra dividend of an investment now that will lower that exposure down the track then that that's something you can throw in so understanding the strategic priorities and almost the culture of the business um is mm. I, I think also really important and things change Luke. Mm. you know so what might not be a positive business case today in in a month's time um could look really good and and these are the conversations I have with the engineers. You you wait you you build the business case and you wait for the stars to align because at some point in the future things are going to fall into place and you've got to be ready to strike. Mm. And then and that goes to the point that we make in the in the briefing that we are launching today, which is around kind of understanding the investment opportunities and then actively monitoring the circumstances. You know whether that's any energy costs or strategic drivers for the business or whatever it is, um, so that, so that you uh, can be ready to to pull the trigger when it when it makes sense. Bridget, do you have um, anything to add on on that front in terms of that topic of engaging with with leadership? It's a really really important topic, um, particularly when you're driving change in the business as well. Um, and I agree with Justin and your your comments around getting the narrative right, but what I'd also add to that is engage early um, and also see it as an opportunity to educate as well because, you know, your execs don't necessarily know the subject matter as well as you do and how everything interrelates and how you should be interacting with the market. Um, for instance, and how complex that is. So look to engage early, look to potentially bring them along on the journey as to what you're trying to achieve. Um, That's really important. And be very, very clear on what your drivers are for doing it. So I think they're really important keys when when you're looking to engage and, you know, drive change or get a project, a big project up. And, and Christina, um, obviously you're supporting companies across the economy, but you are a, a big company in the economy and, and taking a position on this stuff. And mm. my, my sense is that it may almost be Shane that is <laughs> leading the charge and, and, you know, people, uh, you know, across the ANZ as an organisation that are uh, that are falling in behind him. But what, what's the dynamic within ANZ and, and that whole mm. leadership conversation? Well, well certainly I, I'm a lucky girl, you know, because I, we have a, a board, a chairman and indeed a CEO who are very passionate, uh, you know, in this area and who have been, you know, quite vocal in the public domain on their their views around the need for the Australian economy and customers to transition. Um, 
I, I would say probably a little bit like Justin and Bridget that, you know, the business case picks up, you know, every aspect of your organisation. It, it's, yes, your customers and your customers in your supply chain. I think it's particularly also for larger companies, your employee engagement. Uh, you know, I would always get far more feedback from internal staff when we come out and talk about particular uh, initiatives in this space or achievements in this area. Um, I think the thing that really catalyzed the journey, if I was to say back from 2012 when I established a small sustainable finance team in what is a P&L business, that it probably was a journey where you had a lot of people, whether it was internally or externally, to some degree looking at it more like a compliance through a compliance lens mm. as or a threat lens as opposed to a business opportunity lens. Of course, as time has gone on, of course, you've got a lot of companies out there very actively engaged in, in it as a business opportunity. Um, but I think the dialogue really shifted fundamentally when investors started to look at where they were placing their money. Um, and that continues to be that journey. And we've definitely seen that at ANZ when we've gone out and done additional issues in the space for ANZ ourselves in terms of, you know, the uh, enthusiasm or interest or questioning that we get from investors or in indeed the expansion of investors. And I would say for a number of customers that we've done issues for in recent times, um, it has opened up those particular companies to other providers of, um, you know, capital into their businesses and broadened up their shareholder registers. And that quite often has been, you know, one of the, the main you know, talk points because I think initially, you know, not necessarily huge price benefit or quite a lot of work to have your issuers labelled as green or sustainable. What's the benefit? But, you know, broadening out the investors that will go into particular corporates, I think has been the real pivotal angle from that side when you look at the finance sector. And then, of course, just the compelling, you know, fundamental business opportunity, you know, continues to drive that forward. But tapping every part of your organisation and building that robust business case that is also picking up reputational issues, et cetera, I think is very important when you're pitching that into senior management. No, really good points um, and, and covering off that, that journey that a whole organisation goes on ultimately around around these issues and understanding how it affects their role and, and their area of the operation. Sorry, Luke, if I just build on that point Christina made about environment, you know, once being seen as a sort of compliance slash risk management mm-hmm. area and that's that's kind of the, the discussion that I had with my leadership team is that, you know, a couple of decades ago it was about minimising harm. Right now we're in a space where we're talking about zero harm or net zero is, a, is an analogy. Um, but really, if you if you want to be a sustainability leader into the future, you've got to be thinking about, you know, positive impact. Yeah. So you've got to go on that journey from minimising zero harm and then, you know, what are you going to do into the future that's going to create positive impact? So if you look at that in the in the guise of a net zero proposition, you know, again, you're in that space, well, 
you know, what, what are your offset projects going because we know there's going to be a need for some offset projects. So what are the what are the shared value, what are the co-benefits that are associated with those um, carbon carbon budget balancing, you know, mechanisms? Um, and also in your supply chain, I mean, one of the things we did with our renewable power purchase agreement was we offered it, we offered it to some of the hotels that are in our, our customer base. So it was renewable energy that was not only going to um, Lime, but it was also being offered to our, our customers as well. So again, how do you how do you play in that positive impact space? And if that's a part of your vision, if if you're consciously approaching your business cases with, well, this isn't about a risk. This is about what are the what's the opportunity, and and get in the practice of doing that. You you surprise yourself how quickly you can latch on to concepts which can really add value and, and really educate to Bridget's point, educate the leadership team as to you know what these um, opportunities are, and a lot more than managing risk or you know saving a buck on power. Mm. And you've, you've segued brilliantly into the next question, which followed on from the, the internal leadership one, which was, you know, the role of leading companies in, in, in mentoring or supporting the, the transition more broadly, whether it's, as you say, Justin, through the, through the supply chains or through, you know, mechanisms you, like the New South Wales Government Sustainability Advantage Program, which you, you referenced. Do you, think, Justin, first to you, um, uh, that, you know, Lion has a role in, in kind of, you know, sharing learnings, uh, you know, creating that network effect so businesses that you're connected to or, or, or like to um, are able to, to, to transition quickly as well? Yeah, I, I think so. And, and what I'd like to do is, as I said, Vizzy is probably our biggest supplier and, and definitely out the supplier with the largest footprint if you think about the fact that they supply a lot of our cans and they supply a lot of our glass. So very carbon-intensive processes. Um, and I guess the next step for me is to be sitting down with um, Vizzy and having that conversation to ultimately to role model what good partnerships looks like. Um, and I guess I'm not really prepared to have a conversation unless I've got something I can hang my hat on mm. and and again that's something that I want to develop with Vizzy because um, you know Anthony Pratt is quite um, sort of vocal when it comes to sustainability so I suspect you know his, his will is there uh, our will is there so let's um, convert this vision into something that's tangible and again something we can demonstrate to a broader industry as to this is what good collaboration looks like when it comes to reducing carbon but at the same time being financially sustainable as well. And Bridget is that what Bluescope's involvement with the Australian Industry Energy Transition Initiative is about is kind of collaboration to kind of share, share learnings and develop a, a pathway forward not just within the business but but across industries yeah i think it's really important to be able to learn from others and not to sort of have to reinvent the wheel as such every time you look at a new challenge so you know collaborations um, like that one are really really important um, and what I find is also important is that, you know, large, large energy users that have, you know, a focus, a very strong focus on energy costs. Um, when we engage on energy policy, we're also thinking about how this impacts our downstream customers mm-hmm. as well. So where we can be the voice of an energy user in the room, um, we think that, you know, it's important that we do good not only for ourselves but, you know, for our complete supply chain as well. Um, 
So, yeah, I think it's really important um, that, you know, organisations that can take a lead do that with the intent of sharing, with the intent of, of bringing along other other large energy users and other smaller energy users that don't necessarily have the same capability to be able to, you know, drive for things that are going to support manufacturing um, industry in general. Mm -hmm. Well said. Now, we're we're almost out of time, but but, uh, Christina, Tony, did either of you have any final thoughts? Well, maybe just to continue on that theme, I actually definitely think that sharing, learning and case studies is incredibly important. Uh, You know, it's very powerful for businesses to share that information with other businesses uh, because I agree with Justin's earlier comment that, you know, um, activity and business leadership will front run policy change. Uh, you know, particularly, I would say, in, in, in this country. I'd, and I'd say that that needs to be done at all sort of levels. So, you know, certainly we've been quite strong in wanting to partnership with industry bodies such as Energy Efficiency Council, but also, you know, with um, different sort of, um, you know, media firms, you know, people like Kanga News, et cetera, in the debt capital markets in terms of what is the latest innovation happening in financial products. And, again, that's not – that's about getting all the right, uh, you know, investors and, indeed, financiers and insurance into the same room and largely on the same page about how can you sort of accelerate, uh, you know, that initiative going forward and you know to to in my mind there's a huge opportunity in this country to continue to do that and and it's very critical for the development and and continued prosperity of the country and certainly something we're trying to do with this project which is to kind of capture case studies like like Bridget's and and Justin's and Mm. disseminate them through the through the documents we're releasing but also through the through the website um so that uh so those uh those leaders are recognised. Um, Tony, any, any final thoughts? I think two things. Like one is um, the direction is now clear on climate change. The speed is not. And like most things, um, some things now look easier than they did 10 years ago. For example, the cost of renewables have come down dramatically, which is always what happens when you apply any sort of market structure. I mean, people find better ways and cheaper ways to do things, and that will happen again in the future. But equally, some things are looking harder. Some things about integrating very high levels of wind and solar into our system still are pretty tough. So there's some things to be done. I think for businesses, the other thing about this is that this is now another environmental issue, an issue in their business environment, not a, a physical environment that needs to be managed seriously at a pretty senior level. And we've talked about the role of senior management here because I think all businesses now have to at least be thinking through What's the impact of a changing climate? We don't have summer anymore in Australia. We have the bushfire season. Now, what, what, is, what does a changing climate mean for our physical assets? Um, what are emerging policies going to mean for our, uh, our businesses and even the value of it, the holding value of our assets, depending on what we're exposed to? Um, because we know it's going to happen more, and we've already seen uh, in the case of people like Fortescue, people like Santos, where companies have put forward the idea that we, we are committed to doing something and the regulators say, okay, we'll do it. We'll write that into your approval of your project. You now have to do it. You know, zero emissions is the, is the regulatory requirement of your project. So what does that mean? And I guess finally, 
what really are, and this has been talked about already, the smart companies are thinking about what are the expectations and demands that are going to come on our business from all the stakeholders, our customers, our suppliers, um, our partners, governments, and so forth, and employees, our shareholders. I mean, this is coming at us from everywhere, and it just means that it's just another bigger and maybe more complex for the while. But as people get on top of it, it does just become, in my view, part of the fabric of the organisation, but the changes happen remarkably quickly and I think it's an incredibly positive story, which leads to those business engagements with incredibly big opportunities. Yeah, that's a it's a great note to end on, Tony. There are, there are huge opportunities in this space, and, and ones that um, we're very hopeful that Australian businesses are able to embrace and take advantage of, even as we navigate some some pretty difficult economic times over the next couple of years. Tony, Bridget, Justin, Christina, thanks for an incredible conversation. It has been fantastic to have the benefit of your insights and expertise. We really appreciate. It. You making the time today and thanks too to everyone that joined us online it has been great to have you with us to launch the 2020 edition of navigating a dynamic energy landscape if you enjoyed this session i encourage you to join us again at 2 p.m when we'll be launching a companion briefing that does a deep dive on what the energy transition means for australia's manufacturing sector tony gave you a little taster of that earlier in today's session but um, if you want to dig into electrification hydrogen and the, and the different pathways that manufacturers have available to them over the over the next Next, uh, 10 or 15 years, um, then I, I strongly recommend that session. Uh, if you aren't registered yet, you can visit energybriefing.org.au forward slash events. And while you're there, have a look around. You'll find a bunch of new online-only content that went live today, including case studies from leading businesses, 101s on key energy concepts, technical guides on particular technology upgrade opportunities that have been produced by our partners, and information on business support programs from government and industry and all that and you can also sign up to our newsletter to receive more great guidance including timely quarterly insights on energy market developments for business that website again is energybriefing.org.au finally some thank yous to the new south wales department of planning industry and environment for their generous support of this project thanks to to the project reference group which consisted of mark goodsell from ai group tim hadow from business australia miko flynn from dpi and anna scarbeck from ClimateWorks Australia. And a very special thanks to the Energy Efficiency Council's own Holly Taylor, who leads this project and is a passionate advocate for supporting businesses through this transition, as attested to by the last several weekends which she's worked through to bring you this briefing. I'm sure you'll agree she's done a remarkable job with this year's reports. Again, I hope you can join us for this afternoon's sessions at 2pm, but for now it's goodbye from us and we'll catch you soon. I'm still here uh, because uh, in the course of the conversation with Justin, Christina, Tony and Bridget on Tuesday, there was a massive digression into the topic of green steel. And while I wanted to cut it from the main portion of the podcast, I I couldn't quite bring myself to uh, not make it available to our loyal listeners. So if you are interested in uh, that digression, uh, I present it for your consideration. I actually have a question from one Justin Merrill to, to Bridget. Um, Justin, do you want me to ask the question or do you, do you want to ask the question yourself? Well, I feel I should ask the question because it's a tricky one and it would be unfair on you, Luke. But um, uh, yeah, coming from Newcastle, Bridget, and my first job was at BHB and I loved working at a steelworks. Nothing 
um, quite like that experience. But is, is green steel, um, is, it, is it real? How far is the technology away? And if it were to be realised, what would be some of the other benefits that it would bring to the broader economy? Um, so Tony can account for this too. Um, he's done a great um, study into start with steel. <laughs> um, but green steel is real. Um, the technology that's used for it is hydrogen-based. So there's hydrogen-based um, direct reduction of iron that is used to support green steel. Um, and there are plants around uh, that are, I suppose, it's an emerging technology using hydrogen at the moment. Um, what the challenge, the big challenge for green steel is, is the making it commercial at this point in time. So not only is the technology extremely expensive to actually invest the capital in, but then the feed for that, the hydrogen in particular, um, is still very expensive and in Australia um, there is actually no supply chain that can uh, supply that at the moment. So it, in Australia in particular, I think it's still a way off um, potentially, you know, next decade. Um, but it is real and it, it is a, an emerging technology that, you know, I think is an exciting opportunity for the steel industry to actually implement um, as we go forward and look for a low emissions technology solutions. So, so, Tony, you did have that start with steel report that you released back in May. What did you see that sector as somewhat something that we should be really focusing intensely on just at the minute? Look, I think the reason we got into that area, uh, and we didn't, even though the report's called Start With Steel, as you said, um, we didn't start with steel. We started with what, how do we start to think about the difficult to decarbonise sectors in the economy and how do we think about, uh, is that, can we link that with what we think in the next few decades will be the gradual erosion of jobs in carbon-intensive industries? And when you look at the last federal election, what you, what you see is that um, that was clearly a factor in that election where, again, Labor did a very poor job of articulating the narrative around their carbon policies. What we do in Australia, and we do very, very well, is we dig stuff out of the ground and we send it somewhere else. Um, we're very good at that, and I am not in any way doing it. These are world-class companies who do a world-class job at what they do. What we do is we dig up iron ore, which is iron oxide, basically. We dig up metallurgical coal. We send it somewhere else. Now, in some cases, we do it here as well. We do what I'm about to say. Blue Scope does this, and other companies do this in Australia, but not at the same scale. We export a lot of this stuff, and other countries then combine the two. And what happens is the coal is basically a fuel as it is in a power station, the coal is being used to strip out or reduce the iron oxide to iron, strip out the oxygen and produce CO2, which, of course, is the greenhouse problem, which is why steel manufacturing globally is worth about 7% of the total global emissions. However, as Bridget said, in a chemical sense, you can strip out oxygen from iron using hydrogen. When you combine hydrogen with oxygen, you get hydrogen oxide, which is for most people known as water. It's a very different product and obviously environmentally much more interesting. Um, the economics of this is not, are not currently uh, commercial. Um, the government is talking about a target of $2 a kilogram hydrogen, which is a, a funny unit, but that's what they're using. 
right now it's probably more like at least five or six dollars a kilogram. And so, yes, we know how to make renewable hydrogen. That is to make the hydrogen from electrolysis of water um, using renewable energy. The technologies are well and truly understood, but they've never yet been done at the sort of commercial scale we're talking about. So you need very a large amount of very low cost renewable energy. You need um, to drive down the cost of the electrolyzers. Uh, and then you need to be able to have the, the, the process in which the hydrogen can strip out that oxygen from the iron ore to produce the hydrogen. The other reason we think it's really interesting isn't just that companies like BlueScope, if they ended up adopting these technologies over time, could reduce their emissions. It's also that um, Australia may very well have an opportunity to build a much bigger domestic steel manufacturing sector. And we think the economics of this in the future will be very favourable. But as Bridget said, I certainly don't think it's going to happen tomorrow. Um, but we need to plan for it. But we don't, what we don't want to do in 20 years' time is look back and say, well, there was an opportunity that Australia missed out, a really interesting one, economically viable, where we could have added value to the underlying resource, which is our iron ore and our renewable energy. And it's not some esoteric conversation that's often the never-never, Tony. We've just seen the European Union commit hundreds of billions of dollars to building out their hydrogen infrastructure, sort of, you know, and while there's some pretty targeted investments um, being contemplated here in Australia, it's on a, a, what the EU is doing is on a completely different scale. There's, there's a question in the, in, in the Q&A around, you know, how quickly prices could come down um, here in Australia and how quickly businesses could could take advantage of that is that is that kind of a that, that timeline a function of of the, the degree that the government is willing to invest in in supporting that industry to uh, to grow here in australia on the on the renewable energy side i think the answer to the question is no i don't think i mean i tend to agree with both sides of federal politics that the challenge is becoming no longer to try and subsidize to drive down the costs of the renewable energy i mean that's almost game over in a sense um What's going to happen is more and more of these plants are built at scale. The cost will continue to move down. And we've seen some, I know as one of the questions in the Q&A referred to a project in Abu Dhabi where the costs have come down even more than most people thought they were but would have come down by now. Um, so I think that's going to happen anyway. The, the issue is, well, as we do this, there are, in Australia there are two big challenges to renewable energy growth. One is the transmission system in Australia is not well designed connecting large-scale wind and solar farms, and that's been a real problem, and we need to get on top of that. Um, there will be costs, and the cost of that transmission will flow through to electricity prices. That was my comment before about what's going to be the future of electricity prices, and maybe that transmission cost will nudge up. But equally, you know, the sort of things that um, Canon Brooks is talking about to build a seriously large solar project in, in, in the Northern Territory and export electricity through a large um, extension cord to Singapore um, is a really interesting one, but it doesn't need really much government support. It may, obviously, approvals and so forth for project development, but yeah, that's going to come down to a commercial deal, and I think we'll see that driving it. I do think, however, in the case of domestic steel-making capacity, and we're seeing this already in some parts of Europe, we saw a, um, the Swedish government effectively, I think from memory fund, about a quarter of an initial pilot project um, to get on, on green steel, the integrated... Um, process that we've been, I've been talking about now, in our view, there is a very strong and very good economically sensible case for governments to, to fund pilot projects to demonstrate that these technologies can be done in Australia and we can help drive down the cost. So I think that sort of feeding of the early stage technology for the steelmaking process from hydrogen is a worthwhile role for government. 
ultimately, the adoption of those technologies in the marketplace will be done by, by, by the real companies and it will be driven ultimately by supply and demand. So, yes, we'll be able to drive the cost down, but someone's also going to want to pay for it. And I don't think we're going to get cheaper, and Bridget may have a view on this, but I don't think we're going to get cheaper steel. I think there'll be a, an ongoing premium for green steel. But, of course, we also know that some customers in the steel supply chain, the end customers, are looking for green steel. Now, how that plays out, I think, is, is going to be one of the very big questions when there's no big stick on those companies to buy green steel or green aluminium or green cement, whatever it is, what's going to drive the uptake of those commodities will ultimately be a big issue commercially. Well, if my friend Tenant Reid from AI Group was on the call, Tony, this is where he'd start talking about border adjustment taxes and the prospect of those impacting on Australia's exports down down the track. But uh, but Bridget, do you agree? Do you feel like uh, you know in the in the short to medium term, at least green steel is going to be a, a premium product? Uh, with the you know the current price of the inputs, yes. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, being in a commodity market, you really need to have that sort of commodity price driver. And to drive that, then you need the demand for the product. Um, so there's obvious, you know, interdependencies and benefits for, you know, buildings and building manufacturers in reducing scope three and making green buildings even greener. Um, but yeah, without that demand there. Um, and then that demand driving the commodity price, um, it's hard to see, you know. Um, I think, yeah, definitely there'll be a premium at this point in time. And you, you certainly do see some parts of the Australian economy start to, starting to think very deeply about embodied emissions um, and, and the, the property sector and, the, and the, the, the top end of the construction sector. That's some, something that um, they're, they're really seriously grappling with, with some fairly significant net zero commitments um, being uh, uh, committed to by some of those large property groups. So that's certainly plausible. Um, but the, the the comments from Minister Taylor saying, well, we want these green technologies to be lower than the current um, non-green technologies, it's hard to see how that um, uh, is achieved without something like a, like a carbon price. It's um, playing, playing its role in the market. 